Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. Now, today, we're going to be getting a new series examining the cycle of crime films made by and starring African Americans that began in 1991 with the back-to-back hits of New Jack City and Boys in the Hood. Before we get started, I'd like to go back a little bit to the early 70s, when a wave of films focused on the African-American experience featuring largely black performers swept through American cinemas. Often focused on crime and set in poor urban neighborhoods, these films were dubbed both derisively and appreciatively as black exploitation. Driven by funk and soul music-infused soundtracks, movies such as Shaft, Superfly, Coffee, and Across 110th Street brought black stories and black actors into movie theaters across America like never before. As the 1970s wound down, changes in the cinematic landscape led to the end of the black exploitation boom, and African Americans remained largely underrepresented in American film through much of the next decade. While hip-hop music gained in popularity over the course of the 1980s, it wasn't until the success of Spike Lee's landmark 1989 film, Do the Right Thing, that more films focused on the black American experience began to be produced. And just as with the black exploitation wave of the 1970s, many of these films focused on crime and the difficulties of life in economically depressed urban neighborhoods. Now driven by incredible rap and hip-hop soundtracks, these became some of the most influential movies of the decade, beginning with the two films we'll talk about today, New Jack City, and Boys in the Hood. Now, Rob, before we go any further, I think, I think we want to talk a little bit about, you know, why we're starting with these two films. And in particular, I guess, why is this not Get Me Another Do the Right Thing? Yes, um, because all of these films and many others, um, there is, uh, what, film critic and scholar uh, Manthea Diawara had mm-hmm. dubbed uh, this era of, of black film as the new black realism. Yeah. And I think, uh, uh, you know, that Do the Right Thing would definitely fit in there. And uh, even right now at the American Cinematheque, this is kind of coincidental, we've been planning this, uh, but the American Cinematheque here in Los Angeles has been doing a program that they have running throughout 2022 uh, called uh, Perpetrate in Realism. And many of the films that we're talking about, but plus other films, will right. be showing. Because we are focusing... Uh, as is the uh, what purview of this podcast, on what Hollywood tried to copy. Yes. And uh, there's a very interesting discussion. Uh, Hollywood wasn't rushing to make 10 more Do the Right Things. No, they were not. You know, you had, coincidentally, in the same year, two films that happened to have a crime element that were mm-hmm. also about the African-American experience and what had been going on, um, come out that same year, they both did very good box office. Mm-hmm. And so that, but so did Do the Right Thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, while we were not in those executives' offices, I could imagine that some of their prejudices <laughs> would uh, perhaps steer them toward greenlighting more uh, crime dramas with yeah. African-Americans uh, rather than more dramas about racism and the experience of being an African-American. Exactly, uh, yeah. And, and also, it, it, it's sometimes, for any wave to kick off, what we often see is it, it's sometimes it's one film that just kind of opens the door, but oftentimes it's, it's you know, kind of the one-two punch. Like, you have one, and that's not quite enough uh, to, to sort of kick off something because people aren't convinced that the... the the uh, experience could be replicated, but when you get that second one, well, that oh well, now there's a, a sort of uh, a, you know kind of race to to um, you know to say oh well let, let's get let's get me another let's you know now now it, it's a proven a proven formula. So um, there's there's another element as well here. Yes, <clears throat> I think in that what do the right thing was eighty nine. Yeah. Yep. Our two films that we're talking about today are both set earlier. Uh, yes. that, or at least start earlier. Uh, I believe New Jack City's 86 and then 89, 
and uh, Boys in the Hood starts, I think, in 86. It's and then 84. goes to ni- 84 and then goes to 1991 because it's yes. seven years later. And those are all from the era that you started to see the rise of gangster rap. Yep. And uh, what I, I would highly recommend for anyone who uh, is interested in this topic, uh, Garrick Kennedy's uh, book, Parental Discretion is Advised, which is about the rise of NWA uh, specifically, but in the context of, of gangster rap as well. And essentially, <clears throat> to not you know speak for him, but to do a very, very short uh, encapsulation, is that gangster rap was a kind of reportage of what was going on in neighborhoods that uh, were not, was not being heard in other ways in the culture. And I think one can see a line from that music, even though the, the tone and things can be quite different, but the, from that music reporting on what was going on. Uh, yeah. And then it takes a few years because music is faster. Right. It takes a few years for that to filter into film. And I think that's what uh, you, you start to see here. Uh, other people, you, you know, go to, go to these scholars uh, as far as for more information about what these films might mean culturally and what they meant to uh, African Americans at the time, uh, can't really speak to that, but there are uh, there are there are the critics out there, uh, you know, Manthea being one. Uh, there there are plenty of others. Uh, again, I recommend Garrett Kennedy's book as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it seems to line up that it took a little bit longer for that element to make it into film. Yeah, and 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 that 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 theme of neighborhoods being ignored is one that is is front and center in both of the movies that we're going to talk about today. Uh, so we begin. With uh, Mario Van Peebles' 1991 movie, New Jack City. Living, 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 just enough. Wesley Snipes. We will own the city. Ice T. Alan Payne. Chris Rock. Mario Van Peebles. Christopher Williams, Vanessa Williams, Tracy Camilla Johns, and Judd Nelson. This is Detective Nick Peretti, big crazy jawhead, motorcycle freak, reject cop, just like you, Scotty. On the streets, there's a fine line between wrong and right, good and bad, between those who enforce the law. It is a war out there. And those who break it. Going on the days of selling on the street corners, dark alleyways in the back rooms of some bummy-ass bar. We ain't with that no more. In a city where survival depends on friends. It's always business. Never personal. On family. We got to look out for one another. On trust. On loyalty. On power. Am I my brother's keeper? And my brother's keeper. Yes, I am. A family out to run a city are up against cops who know its streets. This ain't business. This is personal. And this is big business. This is the American way. City. Now, the initial story for New Jack City, and I found this to be absolutely fascinating, uh, was written by Thomas Lee Wright, and it actually started as a proposed screenplay for The Godfather Part Three. Uh, this was a couple of years before The Godfather Part Three that we we have, you know that we know, uh, and it centered around the heroin trade rather than crack cocaine. And that story that uh, focused on a black gangster who took over the drug trade from the Italian mafia, and my guess is, you know, sort of uh, rose to be a, a rival to Michael Corleone. That felt the film was co-written by Barry Michael Cooper, who was an investigative reporter for the Village Voice, and had written a cover story about the crack epidemic entitled "Kids Killing Kids: New Jack City Eats Its Young." Uh, the film's gangsters, the Cash Money Brothers, were loosely based on the Chamber Brothers who ran the crack trade in Detroit in the 1980s. And like in the film, the Chamber Brothers took over an apartment block as their base of operations. Uh, the film was directed by and co-starred Mario Van Peebles. Interestingly, his father 
Melvin Van Peoples was one of the filmmakers for responsible for launching the initial black exploitation wave of the 1970s with his film Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And in fact, Mario Van Peebles' first acting role in, was in that film as the young version of the title character uh, that was played as an adult by his father. Um, stars Wesley Snipes as gangster Nino Brown, Ice-T as Scotty Appleton, the cop trying to bring him down, as well as Chris Rock, Alan Payne, Judd Nelson, Bill Nunn, Michael Michelle, and of course, Mario Van Peebles. Um, yeah, I, and I, this is a, I think it's, this is a really interesting film because... It tells the story of New York gangster Nino Brown, who gets in on the ground floor of the crack epidemic of the mid-1980s. He and his crew innovate the drug trade by taking over an entire apartment complex to turn it into both a manufacturing and distribution facility. And on the other side of the law is undercover detective Scotty Appleton, who is determined to bring Nino to justice. And what's interesting about this movie is that in terms of story, New Jack City really isn't breaking new ground. Uh, it's it's the kind of classic gangster rise and fall story that goes back to the films of Cagney and 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 Edward G. Robinson from the 1930s. What's different here is the style and the setting that New Jack City brings to that classic gangster tale. Yeah, and I um look, they're radically different movies, but the movie that came to mind when I rewatched New Jack City for this, uh, I I. I'd seen it back in the day. was always a fan. I uh, hadn't seen it for a while. But Chinatown, mm-hmm. uh, in that it is a genre pick. It's a it's a crime film. You know, uh, they both were crime films. One more of a mystery. This is more of a, a crime, you know, gangster, like you said, in the Cagney mold. Uh, but both of them had grafted on, as part of that, kind of a sociopolitical uh, undercurrent as well and theme yeah. in both of those pictures, um, obviously radically different ones, but that it... It kind of felt in that tradition of kind of the of New Hollywood in that yeah. way, uh, coming out of the in out of the seventies. Absolutely, and 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 uh, it's it's yeah. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, this this movie very much fits in a kind of you know gangster movie tradition. I mean, Wesley Snipes' character Nino Brown is a direct descendant of James Cagney's Tom Powers in The Public Enemy of nineteen thirty one. Uh, and there's a very meta moment in this movie where Nino is watching Scarface and he talks about not making the same mistakes that Tony Montana made and, and suffering the same fate. Spoiler alert, because obviously, I'll say that, uh, he makes the same mistake, you know, and he does suffer a very similar fate. Yeah, um, yeah. And he, he watches Scarface, I believe, twice in this movie we get. Yeah, yeah. And, and and the phrase from Scarface, the world is yours, actually kind of becomes a plot point for the movie. And it's tied up with why G-Money eventually goes and pulls a Fredo. Um, it's, it's a little bit like the sequence in Boiler Room where all the guys are watching mm-hmm. Wall Street. You know, and, and again, yes. this both both Scarface and, and New Jack City predate Wall Street and Boiler Room, respectively. So this was clearly first, but Boiler Room kind of mimicked that scene with them watching the movie about similar type of characters. And uh, you, you talked about the style of this movie, and I, mm-hmm. I really, uh, I, I love Mario Van Peebles' direction in this film yeah. so much. He, he does so many things. And the way this movie opens, um, I think just shows, like, the, there's like a virtue uh, I, I don't even know how to say this, a virtuosity to the gonzoness of this movie. Sure. Um, where it is like so classically well done and executed, but he is going over the top. So it yeah. opens with... Establishing shot of New York City. Establishing shot 80s. of New York City. You, you know, you'll hear the, uh, the, the sound track come on with, you're about to witness the strength of street knowledge. And as you're going over that very normal um, helicopter establishing shots of New York City, you hear all of the crime reports on the radio and reports Mm -hmm. of unemployment. So this is kind of setting you up into the world. And then slowly on that soundtrack, you start to hear a scream that's getting louder and louder and louder. And this all of a sudden you're like, oh, what's on that bridge in the distance? And you keep coming in and coming in and you see that there's one guy is dangling another man off the bridge as the woman is screaming, no, no, no. And not really trying to stop him because it, that's impossible. And then 
uh, Nino Brown comes out of the car. Uh, yeah. And this gentleman who was dangling off the bridge didn't pay him for the drugs or it was bad a bad deal. And then he drops him into the river. Well, yeah. And, and, and let me say, I did not expect him to drop. Like, I, I did not actually expect... Like, I, I, I was kind of like, okay, this is... They're threatening him. And then when he actually dropped him, I just kind of... I... I I just sat there, kind of open. I was like, "Oh, well." That and that was the first of several times where I really was surprised uh, by what happened. And I, I, I think it's like, uh, and I'm gonna, it's kind of like an anti-save the cat moment. I don't know. You, you yeah. must be familiar with the, you know, <laughs> that 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 screenwriting principle of, oh, your good guy. Uh, the save the cat moment is, you know, where it, the the good guy at some time at the beginning of the movie does something like saves a cat, something innocuous that is, you know, shows that he's a good person or he or she is a good person. This is, feels like the opposite of that. <laughs> a- absolutely, and and what I love is that visually, for me, uh, in addition to establishing the character so well, this establishes the the entire worldview of this movie, which is mm-hmm. it, you start with a very peaceful looking New York City. Uh, most Americans know that skyline very quickly sure. and you know what, what that city is all about. And, but by moving in so slowly and slowly getting into the, to the violence, it really is kind of like it's presenting the city. It looks normal and it's literally saying, but if you get close enough, yeah, you're going to see what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, we are then, then after introducing Nino Brown, we are then introduced to Ice-T's Scotty Appleton, who is basically a Sonny Crockett type of undercover cop in that he's seamlessly able to blend in with the people he's trying to bust. And he has, Ice-T's got a great introduction in this film where we first see him trying to make a buy with uh, Chris Rock's character Pookie, then Pookie tries oh, to rip him off. Yeah. And, and there's a fantastic foot chase that ensues and again in another moment that's just surprised me. i was like shocked when chris rock he, he goes on this bike and he goes down this bike and he you know it's like oh he's going into the train oh my god but he doesn't he keeps going on foot and the chase continues and it's fantastic um, yeah, i i love that sequence again just with the the directorial stuff no, number one is that uh you know van peebles is really shooting in new york and he yeah. takes advantage of it. He, he, there are there are moments, a lot of moments in that chase where he's really letting you see where it's happening. He's not cheating stuff with tons of tight shots because they couldn't get the location or whatever. Oh, this wasn't Toronto for New York, Rob. No, no, yeah. this was New York City. Oh yeah, but he goes in and in the whole movie, he, the, his use of close-ups is is really striking to me. Uh, yeah. But here you get as Pookie's on that bike and he's going down the stairs, right? And Scotty's chasing after him. You get these kind of—they're not quite whip pans, but they're—they're—they're they're, they're faster than a normal pan. Mm-hmm. Is he's because the staircase goes around, right? And he's following Pookie, he's following Scotty, and he has these shots where he'll pan to follow Pookie, and it'll go a little faster at the end, so you get kind of like the blur of the concrete stairs, and it. It, there's a cut in there that you just kind of can't see. And then it keeps going. And now Scotty's you, you're following and you, the camera comes into where Scotty is. And it's just yeah. so, I don't know. It's, it's, super it's really cool. good. It's really good. And then, and you know, then ice T uh, has this moment where, well, well let me, let me just add before I go on to the, the, the next moment, but um, there's, you're watching ice T chase down Chris rock. And it took me a minute to real, Oh, that's an ice T song playing on the soundtrack. And there's this kind of <laughs> yeah. like, like, I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then in the end, you know, Scotty collars him and reveals himself as a cop. Like, that's, you know, that's the moment where you realize, oh, this is, a, he's, he's a cop uh, and, uh, you know, and he's undercover. Um, which uh, I believe the first time Ice-T played a cop, uh, yes. which obviously he would make a whole career out of with uh, Law & Order uh, SVU. But uh, this is the first one. And fair, I think this is one of his... Um, it's not the first uh, feature credit he has, but it's it's pretty close. It's it is definitely it was definitely early in his career, uh, and then you know Ice T's cop is partnered with Judd Nelson, um, uh, and they are tasked by their captain Mario Van Peebles plays the captain with bringing down um, you know the Nina the Cash Money Brothers Nino Brown's operation. And what I love is that in particular in the first half, Ice T and Judd Nelson like are pretty damn antagonistic. And I'm just like, I'm thinking to myself, um, <laughs> yeah. imagine Miami Vice if Crockett and Tubbs hated each other. 
Yeah. And it's, it's fun. Um, I, I will say that is uh, the initial them hating each other is, is probably my least favorite thing in the film because it, it feels as if it comes out of nowhere and it's there because they're supposed to not get along uh, so that they can then grow and come to respect each other and, and then get along later. Spoiler alert. Which does happen. Yeah. But I, I will say that it is, uh, look, look, they both do a fine job in the roles and uh, all of that. It's just kind of, you know, this movie is more concerned about other relationships as well it should be, so. Yes. Um, you know, and then you, ha you, you have this sequence where, you know, Nino is building his empire. He takes over the, uh, the, the. Well, it, well. First of all, you get you get introduced to crack. He's like, you know, it's it's uh, G Money kind of shows him that you know, that, hey, this is the new thing, and you know, this is the, there's a potential to make a ton of money, uh, you know, more than in other drugs. And um, you know, then you see them, you know, taking over the the apartment complex and sort of building that empire. And that is another just fantastic sequence in here. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, it was around this point too, where I was, um, this movie is extremely fast paced. I, I think so. With one exception. There, there, there are, there, yeah. And there are I have some one exception. <laughs> yes. Um, but this definitely feels like an MTV era film as well, Absolutely. or at least a post MTV era. Uh, and again, it, he's not shooting this like a music video, but it's just, it's very fast paced. A lot of your scenes are very short, like that whole taking over the Carter sequence. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're taking over the Carter in like maybe four shots and then you're getting a couple shots of like Nino and Kareem, like getting decked out in new clothes and mm -hmm. a new haircut because of the money that they're getting from the operation already. So it's it's moving you through things very quickly and it's not wasting time at all. No, and, and and the only my only exception to that is what what happens uh, in the not in near future in the shortly thereafter is the movie does kind of stop for a bit for Pookie's rehab sequence. Um, oh yeah, yep. Which is I mean, which is necessary story wise, but it, that was the one thing where I said, well, that that kind of stopped the momentum because you 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 don't the whole sequence where Pookie's kind of going through rehab in the various stages, you're not cutting back and forth. To the cash money brothers no uh, the only thing i will say at least for me is i didn't mind it so much um and maybe i was expecting it because i've seen it before too but it, it does it, and that's not exactly the halfway point or anything but it does feel like that is the the bifurcation of this story in a way where you have the pre-pookie cleaning up and turning informant for scotty and you have the the post where it's because really, it's it's the rise of Nino and then right. the fall of Nino, um, and they they really demarcate that pretty pretty hardcore with that uh, that Pookie cleaning up sequence. Yeah, it's it's even more it's even more uh, demarcated than in Boogie Nights when you move from the '70s where everything's great to the '80s where everything falls apart. Um, the first half though has some of my favorite Nino quotes, uh, including and I just I think this is. You gotta rob to get rich in the Reagan era. Oh yes, fantastic! And then just damn crack. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's um, and, and Nino has that whole little speech, and I, I wanted to point this out because uh, it, it comes up again in the, our next film, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a much much different context. But uh, Nino has that whole speech about who is to blame for the drug trade. Yeah. And it really is uh, a speech about that he's giving to his other partners. Uh, and it's about, like, how do you think the drugs are getting in the country? Yeah. We don't do that. How do you yeah. think they're getting past customs? Who has planes? Who has boats? All of that. Now, Nino here, he's not wrong, but he is also, he's using it as a whataboutism to yes. excuse anything that he might do. Right? It's like... Yeah. Other people do bad things, so I can do whatever. Uh, it will be a much different context when something similar happens in Boys to the Hood. Right, uh, with, with, or Boys with the Lawrence Hood. Fishburne's yeah. character. Yeah, and, and it's yeah. it's a very similar sentiment, but from a very different context. And, and it's interesting yeah, to absolutely. see the two different contexts. Um, yeah, and, and, and both of these deal very much with, you know, the reason that, that the Cash Money Brothers can get away with all of what they do is because nobody cares about these largely black communities. And that's another common theme in both of these films is that 
you know, until it starts to, you know, show up on, until crack starts to show up on Wall Street, nobody cares. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's, both of these movies are about neighborhoods that are largely ignored until they become too big of a problem to ignore. They have that scene with uh, the old man where he's coming in when uh, complaining to the cops in the police station about yeah. the Carter getting taken over and they really aren't doing anything. Uh, and uh, and then later we even see uh, what Nino and his guys giving out food in the community. Yeah, there's a couple of sequences where they're they're sort of, you know, ingratiating themselves to the community. Um, and and uh, and there's one where like he's he's given like money to kids and stuff like that, and and then you know the old man uh, comes back in, and that's where he he you know he they have words, and he pulls out a gun in an attempt to shoot Nino, and you know it doesn't happen because you know uh, you know he's not fast enough on the draw, and he kind of telegraphs the whole thing, but it's you know it's it's uh, you know spoiler setting up for things that happen down the line, you know. I- one thing before we get too much further in the story, I just because we're talking so much Nino, right? Is yes. that Wesley Snipes is amazing in yes. this movie. I, I it is like it is, uh, and look, I never talk like this, but this is the definition of a tour de force performance. It is amazing, Rob. It's a star making role. Absolutely. I mean, he is just, yeah, he's just amazing. I really, uh, because it's always kind of a a little bit of a trick when you are playing an anti-hero, right? Yeah. To, like, I'm never rooting for Nino to sell drugs and to kill people. No. But I really am invested in Nino and I do not want to see bad things happen to him. Uh you know, even, you know, there comes a point where they start piling stuff on. Yeah. But th- that that is one of the interesting things where earlier on they do take great pains to, they don't sugarcoat what Nino does. Mm-hmm. But they do some things in there to make sure that you're not completely against him. Like, he's butting heads with, like, the racist Italian mafia, right? Yeah. So they, they bring the Italians in to be, you know, just complete racist, you know, assholes every now and again. So you're just like... Oh, you know, like you don't want to see the Italians get Nino because you're like, those guys are, you know, shitheads. Well, um, it's, it's the it's the thing from The Godfather where, yes, the Corleone crime family are, yes, they are engaged in illegal activities, but they're, you know, they're better than Barzini and Salazzo. You know, you don't want, you know, you don't want Philip Tatalia to take over because that guy's a pimp. You know, and so you, there's that creating of a worse villain. And you have, that's what, kind of the role the Italians fill here. Um, the problem, though, I will say this to make another to, to, to sort of compare it to the Godfather a little bit. Um, the problem with the Cash Money Brothers is that they're a crime family with a Sonny and two Fredos. There's no Michael here. Uh, and that ultimately, you know, their, their, their downfall as the movie kind of shift gears, um, you know, into, into the second half. And then once, once Chris Rock's character, who is, is sent undercover, he's a, he's, a, he's a recovering crack addict, who is sent undercover, well, his his recovery doesn't hold. And as you can imagine, you know, I mean, I'm watching it and I'm like, as soon as they put a wire on that guy, I'm like, there's no way that wire doesn't get found. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and this is where I'm saying it's like this movie has sort of classic, essentially classic gangster movie tropes, uh, and that's okay. And classic, you know, cops and, and gangster movie tropes uh, where where it really is, uh, you know, a break from the from what came before is in its style and 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 its setting, and it it really does. Uh, I love. By the way, I do love that CMB gives their members monogrammed jackets. I think that's fantastic. And, and Chris Rock's got a great line when he's talking about going undercover. Where they're like, they even made me fill out an application. <laughs> and I'm just like, that is great. <laughs> Um, I mean, they get that's that's the Kareem influence, right? It's all very yeah. buttoned up, and they've got they've got banks of computers. It they're taking great pains to show this as a business. Yeah, uh, it's just kind of a you know, a, and, a and that they are modern thing. day gangsters. They are not. They are not. You know, uh, uh, beholden like the Italians often beholden to sort of like you know the old world sort of ways and you know that kind of thing. Um, one of the few scenes where I did think that, that I was like, oh man, they, they ran up against a budget problem. And, and it, it, it compares to a scene in the next movie um, 
was the machine gun attack at the wedding. Uh, there's a scene where, where Nino is kind of presiding. You know, he doesn't actually perform the wedding, but he's kind of presiding over the wedding. And then towards the end, you know, some of the, the, the caterers pull out machine guns and there's kind of a machine gun attack. And first of all, I did love that Nino pulled a Greg Stinson from the dead zone and used a, a child as a human shield. That was, that was something. Um, but the problem with the shootout, and again, that we'll talk about this a little bit in the next movie, is that it's there's no there's no bystanders. Everybody there is either an attacker or an attackee, and well, and the kids, I suppose. But they're part of the wedding, you know. It's it's and and it's an interesting thing where I'm like, oh, if, if you had some more people to fill that out, you might have been able to give a, a fill like a little bit more, you know, the the reaction of the crowd to gunfire. And again, that comes to play in our next film, which has a scene where that is is very much in play and brilliantly done um yeah though i will say that that hit by the the italians again trying yeah, to take yeah. down nino it it does lead to my favorite shot in this whole movie um not oh. not direct it's not like the shot directly after it but where you get this is nino after he's kind of he's starting to really get isolated now from from even his you know quote unquote friends where you get that shot of Nino on his couch and he's just drenched in sweat. The, the, the cameras from up above mm -hmm. and Snipes just has this like haunted look. I, I don't know if he blinks, but it feels like he doesn't in this yeah. shot. And it's just, I mean, it is, uh, I don't know. It's just an amazing, amazing character moment of just, you know, if you didn't know Nino was going to get his before this point, uh, you certainly know it uh, at, at that point. Rob, I'll be honest with you. I knew Nino was going to get his before this moment. Yeah, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I will say that, that there's one reveal in the movie that I, I did feel like might have been the weakest link. Um, is the reveal that Nino killed Scotty's mom. And I, 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 you know, if I have one criticism, it's like that, that is my least favorite plot twist because it's very Jack Napier killing Bruce Wayne's parents, dance with the devil in the pale moonlight kind of shit. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea, but that felt like something earlier got cut. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, but it, it just had that kind of feel of, you know, a studio or someone going, this is a crime picture. We need it an hour and a half, baby. Like, you know, <laughs> right. you know, and you're just. Yeah. Like, and I was even thinking that, like, if you had if Scotty knew from the start and that that's why he was obsessed with bringing down Nino. But it, it, the way it sort of casually comes out in a conversation between the two um yeah, it's sort of it, it's 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 a strange moment. It was, and I wanted to remark on it because while I, I like this film uh, a lot, I, I there were a couple of things uh, that and and the courtroom scene at the end might have been because uh, it is the least it is not the least realistic courtroom scene in cinema. It's not quite as bad as Ben Affleck's Daredevil, where a defense attorney is acting as the prosecutor, but it's close. Um, but it, I mean, again, it's it's a great. It's one of those those things where the message is great. You know, that, that essentially Nino is part of this machine and the machine is going to protect its its parts. Uh, but I just, it's, it's like, well, that's not how trials work at all. Yeah, because um, yeah, at the end, uh, Nino essentially just blames Kareem uh, yeah. as, as being the head of the Cash Money Boys. And they instantly cut him a deal so that yeah. he's only going to wind up doing a year in prison like, yeah that's not that that i will is not how is not how trials work um yeah i mean that's um, that's a thematic yes. thematic movement rather than than you know realism I but th it. It, it then leads to our it, the grand yes. finale it leads to the grand finale which is uh is fantastic where nino now yeah again we've said this is a movie where plot wise you're not going to get a lot of necessarily a lot of like turns that you don't expect but at the end Courtesy of the old man who tried to shoot him before. Now he's got his he's got his game face on a lot more. And as Nino's being brought out of the courtroom, you know, you get justice from the neighborhood. And uh and and it's it's uh it's a great moment. It's it's really good. You know, he gets his star face. Chris uh, and I was gonna say, Chris, because I know that you love this, uh he does get shot, but how exactly does he die? Oh, he dies because he falls over the, the, the railing. Yes, he the classic from late a great 80s, height. early 90s villain 
fall <laughs> from a great height. Uh, and what I love is that of all the cut, of all the, the, they cut to a giant goofy smile on Judd Nelson's face of all people. And it's hysterical to me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, again, this movie, it was, a, it was a big hit when it came out. It's, I, I think it's a really, uh, I think it's really good. You know, and it, it, I mean, it's really, it's taking a classic model gangster story and putting it in the context of sort of the modern, what was then the modern of the late 80s, early 90s, the crack cocaine epidemic. And, uh, you know, again, using that, that hip hop propelled soundtrack, which is fantastic. I mean, the music through this movie is just wall to wall terrific. But that, I think uh, that is a good way to transition to our next movie here, which also came out in 1991. And that's Boys in the Hood. This is Los Angeles, gang capital of the nation. It just goes on and on, you know. Either they don't know, don't show, don't care about what's going on in the hood. In South Central LA, let's do the local thing. It's tough to beat the streets. What am I supposed to do? Fool roll up, try to smoke me. You shoot the mother. Think, young brother, about your future. Man, why are you sweating me? You're my only son, and I'm not gonna lose you to no bull. Hey, don't worry about it. I can take care of myself. Trey wanted to work his way up. Trey is a grown man now. He is not a little boy anymore. I heard you like Mr. GQ smooth now. Maybe some of what you gotta rub off on him. Ricky was looking for a better life. I want to do something with my life, right? I want to be somebody. When you were a little boy, you used to run around here all the time with that football in your hand. I always knew you would amount to something. Doughboy was living by the laws of the street. What you looking at? We got a problem here? We got a problem? Can we have one night where there ain't no fight, nobody gets shot? It's hard to be a saint in South Central L.A. I don't understand why you insist on learning things the hard way, Trey, but you're going to learn. Is this the craziest place on the planet? Something wrong? Something wrong, yeah. It's just too bad you don't know what it is. Watch out, mother... Boys in the Hood was written and directed by John Singleton. It was Singleton's first feature film. He was nominated for the Academy Awards for Best Original Screenplay and Best Director. At 24, he was the youngest person nominated for the Best Director Oscar, as well as the first African-American to be nominated in that category, which is mind-boggling to me. Uh, the film stars Cuba Gooding Jr., Ice Cube, Morris Chestnut, Nia Long, Regina King, Angela Bassett, and Lawrence Fishburne as Furious Styles. And I have to say, for the record, Furious Styles is one of the greatest character names in all of cinema. Uh, and it tells the story of three friends, Trey, Doughboy, and Ricky, who are growing up in South Central Los Angeles trying to survive in a neighborhood inundated with violence, drugs, gangs, and broken homes. And what it's, it's, well, let me just say, this movie's brilliant. Like, top to bottom, the performances, the writing, the direction, everything. All the little details. I think it is just as relevant today, maybe more so than 1991. And that's incredibly sad, you know, that, that it is so relevant. Yeah, this is, uh, unlike our last movie, this is not a crime film. No. This is a very, uh, it's funny, obviously the details are very different, but this feels like a very classic Hollywood drama. Yeah. Uh, There's a crime element. Yeah, there's a crime element in it, to be sure. Uh, But this is not a crime film. It is not a gangster film. It is a, uh, it's a drama about people and their relationships and obviously the the social issues going around uh uh you know in uh in southern california at that time for african americans but you know above all of that i i say it feels like a classic hollywood drama because this film 
feels like a classic. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you have, if your list is going to have a hundred or 200, whatever your list of greatest American movies. I mean, yeah, this, this has is to on be it. on it. This is on Th- it. This has to be on it because just, I mean, top to bottom, as you said, in, in every aspect, this, this movie's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's interesting to me because there's a lot of aspects of this movie that, that don't deal with crime. But uh, it's the crime aspects that the subsequent movies that followed it, which we're going to talk about in, in the weeks to come on this series, uh, that's what was keyed into. And, and I, I'm going to make an analogy, and it's an odd one, but, but go with me. It's a little bit like the disaster wave of the 1970s, the disaster movie wave of the 1970s. One of the films that kicked that off was 1970s Airport. And that film is basically about the lives of these people working in a major metropolitan airport. The disaster element, which is about a damaged plane that might not be able to land, is part of that. But it's not the whole thing. But that's what later movies keyed into, like the Poseidon Adventure and the Towering Inferno and the airport sequels. That's what they keyed into and that's what they focused on. It's the same thing here. There's a crime element to Boys in the Hood for sure. But that's what the later movies that would that would follow it that tried to 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 follow in its wake. That's what they tried to 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 focus on, and and it's just interesting because it's it's so much more than that. There's so many details in this movie that just like the teacher at the beginning, grudgingly correcting herself from Indians to Native Americans, and I'm thinking of all of the panic and pushback now about so-called critical race theory in schools today. And, and again, I've just watched it. I'm like, John Singleton had it all in 30 years ago. And, and you know, this movie is, is, is replete with the assumptions of white people that turn out to be incorrect. You, you get it all through. And it, it's, um, God, this movie is terrific. It's just terrific. Um, and the, it, it, for me, it, you know, as far as the story goes, it all starts with the characters. Um, yeah. and, that, and thus with the actors. Before oh. we get into the the actors who have big names now who play yes, the, the, the kids. kids grown up, but in Act One, oh. like really Act One of this film, so about almost about the first half hour takes place in 1984, and so you're not getting Cuba Gooding Jr., you're not getting Ice Cube, you're not getting uh, Morris Chestnut, you're getting kids who are playing those roles of those three friends when they were much younger, seven yeah. years younger, and I like I. The, the performances that Singleton gets out of them and that, and that they give I, I, again, it's um, it is some of the best child acting you will ever see um, again, very different context, but it, it, I mean, it reminds me of um, like stand by me as yeah. far as like the, you know, the level of performances from very young actors that you're getting, um, you know, it took me a while cause I was just in the movie and it was about 15, 20 minutes. And I said, wait a minute. I'm like watching young kids. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this is, and I just kind of blew my mind. It, cause it didn't even occur to me, which I will be honest. Most of the time that you have a younger actor in a film, right. uh, you're often, you're often very cognizant of the fact yeah. that they are younger. But not here. And, 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 you know, you mentioned stand by me, but it's apparently that is, that is one of uh, the movies Singleton, is a big fan of and he put in that nod because there's the scene where the yeah. kids are walking on the train tracks and they actually want do you want to go see a dead body i mean which is the is it's sort of the, the inciting incident of stand by me and uh and there's a nice nod to it i i thought the early scenes of this movie uh that first half hour when it's in 1984 and the kids are 10 uh is is amazing and and there's an element of it that's so damning to us today and it really bothers me because the early scenes of this film with the kids largely left to their own devices and it makes me think of so many movies from the 80s including Stand By Me where the kids are on their own and how nostalgic we are for that era now but that nostalgia is predicated on a relative safety that these kids aren't privileged to have you know we we always get you know in the era of stranger things we're nostalgic for kids on bikes well these kids don't have bikes and these kids have to contend with things that I'm sure you or I did not have to as 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 children. You know, the Goonies didn't have to worry about a drive-by. Yeah, and there's a there's a really heartbreaking moment 
and it's it's not lingered on because it is presented as mm-hmm. just another thing uh when they see the blood on the ground and i think one of the other kids says well, that, that's not blood why is it yellow yeah. and he says that's what happens when the plasma separates i think i i think it's trey who says it. like i think trey says the the yeah, the, about the plasma, but yeah, but th- that it's something they seen before. I mean, that's that's that 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 a child that young would know what separated blood does and what it looks like. It's uh, you know, and it's it's play. It's not it's not played as uh, it's not overplayed at all. It's just no. like that, and the kids are just you know they're going on with the scene then, uh, and they're they're moving on. But uh, it's just there. There are lots of little things like that throughout that are um, th- just the the level of detail in this movie yeah. uh, is just uh, I mean uh, amazing. Oh God, yeah. And and uh, to talk about an element, I want to talk about an element that starts in that early part of the film but continues throughout, uh, and that is the relationship between Trey, the main character, and his father, Furious Styles. Uh, what happens early on in the film is that Trey gets in trouble in school and his mother, played by Angela Bassett, says, decides to send him to live with his father. Uh, they are not together. And Trey uh, spends the next year living, the next seven years, excuse me, living full time with his dad, uh, Furious Styles, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Um, the relationship between Trey and Furious is one of the best father-son relationships in any movie ever it is absolutely amazing it is absolutely convincing and it will it will it will get inside your heart because it got inside mine and uh and and you know i could watch trey and furious together all day whether it's whether it's the young boy or whether it's the 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 cuba gooding jr as the 17 year old uh trey it, it is just amazing yeah i mean you, you you feel the love that these two have for each other but also, yeah. what I what I really loved is that this is not a perfect relationship either. No, um, you you see the faults in both. Um, I mean, mm. Trey is ostensibly, you know, the quote unquote good kid in the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Ricky is as well, but Trey's the one who they think is gonna, you know, Ricky might get his football scholarship, but Trey's the one right. who's gonna, you know, go to college and make something up. Trey's go was does not need a football scholarship, and and here's the thing about Trey. And this is again the tragedy of this 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 whole thing is that while Trey is is lucky to survive the neighborhood and he which he grew up he's obviously a bright kid if he had grown up in a largely white neighborhood his future never would have been in doubt he was a bright enough kid he was good he was going to go to college he was going to make some of himself it's it's because he grows up in this neighborhood that it's it's even questionable if he's going to make it with the two of them. You know, they're, they're both doing the best they can and they, they yeah. both make mistakes. Um, sure. But you're never in doubt of their intentions with each other as father yeah. and son. And, and there's just some beautiful uh, moments between the two of them. Uh, that scene where yeah. they're in the car and they're uh, the... Uh, the oh God, now I, I should have written down what name of the song was on, but it's sort of classic uh, Bowtown era song and the two of them are together. And I'm just like, it, it, it really it, it really touched me uh, in... You know, it, it had, I had seen this movie, but it had been a very long time, and uh, it, it 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 connected with me in a very in a very fundamental way. Um, you know, it's funny because if you if you read a lot about the if you read a lot about Boys in the Hood, the the discourse of this movie, a lot of it centers around fathers and the lack of fathers and and Furious's influence on Trey, and obviously that is of a great significance. But I wanna I wanna point something out because I I don't see it. I know, in the reading I've done about this movie, I haven't seen it talked about. Is is the reverse? Is Trey's influence on Furious? Uh, Furious has got a great line when Trey is teasing him about getting older, and Furious says, "Getting old? No, no, no. I'm getting better." And so great. And and but here's the thing: if you look at how Furious is living when Trey first comes to live with him full time. And then you look at, at how the seven years later, when the main part of the movie takes place, I think you see the effects that being a father had on Furious. That is one of the things that made him better. 
and it's it I, I just don't see it I don't see it talked about in, in all the discourse around this movie which is considerable is a, there's a lot about the influence of Furious on Trey but there's I think there's there's significant stuff in this movie about the influence of Trey on Furious and I just wanted to point that out because well that's what we do yeah I mean there there's no more uh you know, barbells in the middle of the living room. Yeah. Uh, in 1991. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the tub doesn't look like that anymore. Uh, exactly. He goes, he starts to look less like a bachelor who's kind of let, let things go. Right. And visually becomes a man who has something to live for. Um, and, and, and that relationship with the two of them, we'll get to the end. I, I want to talk about the end of this movie, but I want to get there. Obviously we have a, a bit more, um, I will say th- this movie is is funny too. Like it's a, it's it's a movie of, of trap, but the the relationships with the characters and their and their interplay between the characters there are some genuinely funny moments um, and some genuinely lighter moments. There's a great bit um, that kids today won't understand, but there's a great bit about demonstrating the perils of call waiting. Where it's like, oh, did I click the line over? And he's like, he's oh, oh he's still on with his mom. It's really funny. Um, yeah, because Trey's Trey's uh, sweet talking Brandy trying to get into her pants on the phone, yeah. and then mom calls, and uh, he thinks he clicks over to Brandy. He does not, and he does not. Uh, no. a little embarrassed with mom, who is oh. now wondering what's going on. Yeah, um, it's, that's a great moment. Um, it really uh, is. another another little one. Uh, I love uh, Brenda, who is uh, what Doughboy and, and Ricky's mom. Yeah, I love the little the little through line. It's in you know it doesn't. It's just part of the background where she's she's kind of always asking after Furious. Like, yes, she is. You know she's she's a little sweet on him, and uh, you know and who wouldn't <laughs> be right? But uh, it's like fun. Like she sends home uh, the plate of barbecue with Trey yeah. for him. And is uh, you know, asking after him in a few different uh, scenes, including earlier when they were kid kids, I believe. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely it's a through line throughout the movie. That's great. Uh, now, Rob, you and I both live in Los Angeles, so we are both familiar with this. But it is uh, th- one of the things I noted about this movie: the ubiquity of helicopter noise in this neighborhood. Yep. I mean, yep. we 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 hear helicopter. If you live in LA, you hear helicopters, but in this neighborhood, you hear them all the time. In particular, it's particularly noticeable during Ricky's interview with the USC recruiter. It's like you could just hear those helicopters and how much that must be disconcerting. I mean, it's one thing. Yeah, we hear them, we hear them but they have them all the time. And it's just... And uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the volume level of them, those sounds are, they're not just in the background. They're competing with whatever the sound you're supposed to be hearing as far as yes. what a movie wants you to hear yes and just and having lived here and and uh you know i i lived in an area that for a like about a two-month period we were getting buzzed because of uh things that were going on in los angeles at the time mm-hmm. and there there's a there's a a big difference when the helicopters go by in their in their higher flight pattern you yes. hear them but it is very much in the background the level of helicopter noise in this is extremely indicative of, of really low flying helicopters. That is low what that and is circling. Like. They are low, low and yeah, they are low circling. and circling. Yeah. And, it, and that, that, you know, that'll reverberate the walls in your place. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you, you can feel it when they get low enough and close enough. And I, I can, yeah, I, I did not have to live through that for years and years. Uh, but I can tell you just doing it for a couple months uh you get on edge yeah 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 and and, and um you know uh we have that there's a great scene where furious drives over to uh one of the the neighborhoods where there's this, a billboard you know cash for your home and furious has that speech about gentrification why don't y'all take a look at that sign up there see what it says cash for your home you know what that is it's billboard what are y'all, Amos and Andy? Are you stepping and he's fetching? I'm talking about the message, what it stands for. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. They bring the property value down. They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. Now, what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything, black. 
black owned with black money, just like the Jews, the Italians, the Mexicans and the Koreans do. And I'm telling you, man, listening to that 30 years later sounds, I mean, absolutely prescient on the part of John Singleton. Like he saw where things were going because I'll tell you, that's where they went. And it's absolutely true. And that's the, the scene where Furious is taking Trey and Ricky winds up coming. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, he gives them uh, the speech to kind of, uh, you know, set them set them straight, set them on a good path about what they need to do uh, for the neighborhood. And this is also uh, some other people in that neighborhood, which is not where they're from, mm-hmm. uh, come up and they start having a little conversation with Furious and uh, one of the older residents says the reason our property prices are going down is because of them pointing at the right. younger, uh, younger people who he is presuming to be uh, in, in the drug trade. And that's when Furious drops the speech that is in many ways hits some of the same points as Nino's in New Jack City. Yeah. And he, he gives his own version of the do we own the planes? Do we own the boats? Are we bringing yeah. the drugs in? How are they getting into the neighborhood? No, we're just, you know, they're like the last mile of it. Yeah. Uh, but here, it's not it's not cover for, so I can do the worst things imaginable and it doesn't right. matter. Furious is actually saying, the system is trying to wreck us and we can't let it. We can't let exactly. them do it. We have to fight back, which is, uh, you know... It's so interesting just to see the different contexts and how almost a, or a very similar point can be made by two different characters and it illuminates their character in completely different ways. Yeah. It's, uh, it was just, you know, I guess for us in some ways, uh, a happy accident. We didn't plan that. We didn't know it. No, no. Uh, but to, to see the, these two back to back, it was, uh, I don't know, very eye opening. I thought it was great. No, I, I thought it was absolutely great. Uh, I want to make another comparison to, to between our first movie and our second movie. I talked uh, earlier how about one of the scenes I, I thought could have been more effective in New Jack City was the, 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 the gun attack at the wedding scene. There's a scene here that I think is a counterpoint uh, to, this, to that scene in New Jack City with the wedding, which I, 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 I was one of my, I thought was lacking in some ways. And here you have the scene at the street race where Doughboy has a confrontation with a group of bloods, and it ends with machine gun fire in the air. And one of the things I thought was so brilliant about that scene is the collective physical reaction of the crowd. And it gives it an absolute authenticity. You, you, know, you, you hear the, the noise, and people start running as a collective mass. And, and it's... It's just, it's a great piece of filmmaking by John Singleton. And I just want to, you know, it's one of those things I wanted to compare and contrast um, where you see the crowd move as, as a whole. Uh, the Godfather movies are, are, are great examples where you see people reacting collectively to violence, like the, the, uh, the festival scene in Godfather Part Two, and again, when gunfire goes off. And I just want to point out because I think just John Singleton does such an amazing job. And again, prescient to you know a world where school shootings and 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 all kinds of mass shootings of malls and 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 all you name it you know and and depicting the the just the 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 instant terror that that creates and i thought just singleton did it so well here and and that scene is uh even more effective because uh before that point before the confrontation that then leads to the to the Uzi or whatever getting fired into the air, um, that scene is again showcasing the friendships and how great yeah. they are. I mean, it that scene starts off; it almost feels like a nineteen ninety one version of American Graffiti, sure. right? Where it's like everyone's out in their cars, they're young, they're kind of like, this is the place to meet, you know, pe- you know, guys are trying to look at girls, which is a whole other thing in this movie, but, yeah. uh, you know, and then that just gets, it's like, no matter, you know, that, that gets punctured by, yeah. you know, the, the violence. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, that sequence, um, you know, the, 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 and the actions that Doughboy takes, 
um, you know, directly leads. That's that sort of sets in motion the last sequence of events uh, leading to Ricky's death. And uh, you know, and then as we learn in, in at the end of the in the, the the final credit shot, you know, there's you know that Doughboy dies two weeks later, and so both of them don't make it out. Uh, and uh, uh, this movie is about cascading waves of generational tragedy. You know, Ricky's death is a tragedy, but it's compounded by the fact that his son will now be another, another son who grows up without a father. And the cycle continues. And it, it, it's, it's really, it's really, it's an extraordinary movie. Uh, it's extraordinarily well made, and it affected me very deeply. And uh, God, that scene... Man, that scene where Furious tries to stop Trey from going out for revenge, man, that scene is incredible. You know, Lawrence Fishburne and Cuba Gooding Jr., Jesus, man, that, uh, that was a tough scene. Yeah, and when, when you see this thing for the first time, and so spoiler alert, if you, if you maybe you should see this if you haven't already. If you uh, haven't seen this movie, go see this movie. Yeah, but, uh, and this is the kind of thing that I think a lot of movies try and they, they are not able to pull off. You buy that Furious stopped him. Yeah. Lawrence Fishburne and Cuba Gooding Jr. sell it. You're like, oh, thank God, Furious stopped him. And then it's when Brandy comes over yeah. and Furious says, yeah, you can go in and see him. And she goes in uh, to Trey's bedroom and the window is open and he's gone. And it really is a surprise, uh, which I've just yeah. ruined for you, but you should have stopped listening and watched the movie by now. Uh, but uh, it's, I always it's, try to give spoiler warnings oh, in every I, episode, I, then I get caught up in it and I forget. Uh, no, it's uh, people, people know, right? They, they, if you're, if you haven't seen a movie and you're turning on the podcast, uh, you, you, I think at that point, it's if on you here. haven't seen the movie, yeah. and turning on, please go watch the movie because again, both of these movies are great. Uh, in particular, Boys in the Hood is uh, is is one of the great movie, one of the great American movies of all time. Yeah. Um, and what yeah, one I, other? My, I mean, it's not a minor point, but I, I won't belabor it. Uh, another thing that I just loved about this movie is, with all of the socio political, you know. Uh, issues going on and themes that we've been talking about that are, you know, in the movie. Uh, what I appreciated, this film does not shy away from showing the misogyny that also existed at that time. That is absolutely true. But it never, it's never endorsing it. Like you yeah. can, it, and again, this is, you know, a directorial magic trick where there are, there will be a character uh, often Doughboy, uh, who will be saying, uh, something misogynist or acting in a misogynist way and uh, he and his buddies are having fun with it. The yeah. film is never asking you to have fun with him. Ever. It's very clear. Absolutely. And um, you know, it's just uh, so again, it, it doesn't shy away and again, this is as we had said, this is one of the films in the new black realism. Uh, so they're, they're showing, he's showing everything. I want to ask you a question about the end of this movie. Um, because there is something that I, I think is left a little open-ended. And I, I, I'm heavily invested. I'm heavily invested in Trey and Furious's relationship as a father and a son. A son and father. Um, what is the status of their relationship at the end of this movie? Because the last we see of the two of them together is when Trey comes home after not participating in the, the, the violence, uh, you know, the revenge killing. And Furious, you know, he kind of goes into his bedroom and closes the door. And d does he assume that Trey was part of the violence that night? And what is their relationship afterwards? Uh, we never have a scene where he tells Furious, you know, where, where Trey tells Furious, oh, I couldn't do it, or anything like that. And it's really interesting because it would have been easy to do it. It would have been easy to have kind of, you know, I couldn't do it, Pop. Um, we never have that. It's left open-ended. And, and I, I wonder, you know, again, and this may be in John Singleton's mind, like, what, what was their relationship like in the days and weeks to come? Because I, I, I'm so invested in them as a, as a father and a son. I, I hope that it survives. I, I think it does. I, I had a different read when they have that look. 
when Trey does mm. come home that night. Uh, my read is that Furious knows he didn't. It, oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, and the the resignation of him leaving in that moment to me, and look, obviously this is just my interpretation how I took it. No, no, it's super interesting. It, it all it all hinges on a lot of Furious's conversations with Riva this entire film. Yeah, about how essentially. Trey's a grown man now who needs to make his own decisions. And yeah. I, and I think Furious closing that door to me isn't it's not him emotionally closing the door on his son. He had been telling Reva this all along. Yeah. But he hadn't always been acting like it himself when it came to stuff that he that mattered to him, right? So right, if right. it was something that Reva wanted and that Furious didn't care about as much, he'd be like, he's his own man. You got to let him do it. When it came right. to stuff that Furious cared about, uh, no, no, you better do it my way, Trey. You know? Right. Uh, and, and look, you know, uh, oftentimes uh, in a protective manner. No, I think that's great. And it's interesting that we we walked away with slightly different interpretations of that scene. And I just said, oh, man, I, I, I'm... I'm invested in them as a father and son, and I don't want I don't want to see you know that that they, oh yeah they were never the same again you know I'm like oh god you know let, let's oh that's so interesting uh, you know I, I honestly I hadn't thought of it that way and I'm I'm kind of glad to do so because it it uh, I just again that was the thing I I said of all of this we've had all this violence you know two of the three main characters uh, are dead by the time the credits roll. But I just I need to see I need to see Trey and Furious be all right. I'm invested in that, and uh, and again, uh, that's a credit to John Singleton. Uh, this is a masterwork film uh, that he made. This movie at 24 years old. Oh, man, you know what am I doing with my life? You know I, I, I I'm not I'm I'm old. both Rob and I are older than 24, and I I mean this is. This is just, this is such a work of brilliance. And uh, I mean, God, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you've already seen it. If you haven't already seen it, uh, drop what you're doing and go see Boys in the Hood. You know, rent it, buy it. It's great. Uh, it is a true American classic. Uh, and and it, it, it then, you know, these two movies together give, you know, kick off this wave of, of films that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. And... Uh, you know, as we said it earlier, it's interesting. This Boys in the Hood is a much broader movie. It is not just a crime movie, but it's the crime elements that many of the of the movies that followed it keyed in on and played to. And uh, you know, we're we're going to talk about that in in you know in our next episode and the episodes to come. We have some great we have some great movies to talk about, and uh, you know, I'm excited for it. This is a very different a very different series than our last one where we did, was we're talking about Star Wars. Uh, and you know, this is something we wanted to do because we just thought it was, uh, it was something we, well, it was just something we wanted to do. Heck, it's our podcast. So, so there we go. Uh, I, Rob, I think that, that probably brings us to the end of, uh, of, of episode one of, of our, of our, uh, get me another boys in the hood series. We hope that you'll come back next week, um, where we're going to talk about two movies that kind of came in the wake of, of, of these two 1992's Juice. And 1993's Menace to Society. Again, we thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob LaBorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing. Following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another Pod.